On Wednesday this week, 34-year-old military captain Ibrahim Traore was appointed head of state of the West African nation of Burkina Faso after its second coup in nine months. Last year, neighbouring Mali had its second coup in nine months too, that was in May, and then in September 2021, the first democratically elected leader of nearby Guinea was also overthrown in a coup. To discuss the situation in Burkina Faso and the broader decline of democracy in West Africa, on Sunday Extra Now, we're joined by Professor Kwesi Enning, who's a faculty director at the Kofi Annan International Peacekeeping Training Centre in Ghana, and who's previously served as an expert on counterterrorism for the African Union. Kwesi is also currently visiting chair at Uppsala University's Nordic Africa Institute in Sweden, which is where he joins us from now. Professor Enning, welcome to Sunday Extra. Well, thank you very much. Professor, why did Captain Ibrahim Traore stage a coup just nine months after another military officer took power in Burkina Faso? Well, I think the very simple answer is that this is a coup within a coup, that the military as an institution is struggling to find its own identity, but it is also reflective of a much bigger problem. Both the previous President of Burkina Faso and Traore himself have all found very convenient excuses and explanations for why they rudely intervened in the democratic process. One is the fights or resistance against the downward movement of violent extremist groups, which is a really very convenient excuse. The second relates to the dislocations that have taken place within the economy because of COVID-19 and, of course, the Russian-Ukraine war. All these excuses and explanations have been used by the military. The rather tragic aspect of this case, and also similar to Mali and Guinea, is that quite large sections of the civilian population go out into the streets and support these takeovers. So Traore is now the new man in power. My assessment is that he has a really very short time, between three to six months, to demonstrate that he can turn the war around, create an enabling environment for the economy to begin to grow, and for people to feel a tangible improvement in their livelihoods. Otherwise, we will see, unfortunately, some more disturbances. You mentioned the importance of turning around the conflict. Could you explain for us a little bit more about the nature of the conflict between the government of Burkina Faso and the Islamist rebels who currently control, I believe it's about 40% of the territory of Burkina Faso? Let me probably give it a slight historical background. What is happening in Burkina Faso is a dynamic that began somewhere around 2008 and 2009. So we saw Al-Qaeda in the northern part of Mali as early as 2008 and nine, very comfortable, providing social welfare goods in which people felt they delivered much better on their promises than the state. They also intermarried. So by 2012, when the coup took place, Al-Qaeda had gotten almost close to half a decade to establish in the northern parts of Mali, build networks, and begin the downward movement towards Bamako. So the case of 
Burkina Faso. It's not something that has just happened out of the blue. It is a specific, deliberate strategy by the extremists to move all the way to the coast. Why has Burkina Faso's case unraveled so quickly? Most of the militaries in West Africa are still being trained as if they are fighting a conventional war. And therefore, when they face a highly mobile, fast-moving, unidentifiable enemy, it's difficult for them to use their set pieces in responding to these people. In frustration, they then identify villages, areas where they presuppose that these extremists then get support. Innocent people are then attacked, killed, properties destroyed, allowing the extremists to use a narrative that is sympathetic, that gives a picture of hope. And before we are aware, they are able to gain ground. So yes, 40% of Burkina Faso is gone, but I'm afraid that the southward drive by these groups might need a much more effective type of response from statutory security forces. Rather, we are seeing northern Togo, northern Benin, northern parts of La Côte d'Ivoire all under threat. So this is a widening problem. But closely related to that is the sheer panoply of interventions and schemes supposedly to respond to these challenges. So we have the UN in Mali, we have the EU, we have the G5 force Sahel, you know, multiple groupings that all claim to be stabilizing the state and preventing the downward movement of these extremist groups. Over time, we are seeing these interventions have not been too effective. And very symptomatic of this is the response to France, particularly in Mali. There's an anti-French movement in Burkina Faso growing. There's a growing anti-French movement in Niger. Right now, there is a sense in Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea, and elsewhere in Niger that it's only external involvement that will get the job done. My argument and experience is to flip the question that those who seek to govern have a responsibility to ensure that they deliver the goods that they have promised their populations. That approach will bring credibility and sustainability to these interventions. To what extent have international powers, and in particular Russia, tried to capitalise on this internal instability. It was noticeable, for example, that protesters in the capital of Burkina Faso were chanting both France get out, but also long live Russia-Burkina cooperation. Russia is not a new entrant into Africa's politics or security. That's number one. Number two, there is a certain softness for Russia across the continent because it stood by these countries when they fought for their independence. But not only that, in the 60s and the 70s, you know, Russia gave thousands of scholarships for young Africans to go and study. A lot of them have come back home now and they are in fairly senior positions. But the resurgence of Russia in Africa right now is also reflective of the failure of Western assessments about Russia's role. 
If we take the softness with which Russia was treated when it invaded Crimea, because it was then a member of the G8 until it was expelled, Russia then held the Russia-Africa summit. And the documents that were presented were very clear as to Mr. Putin's medium and long-term goals. Western risk analysts basically said, oh, that's that man talking. Russia, during that meeting, identified the critical security challenges that Africa faces and offered to respond to some of those challenges. It has not been able to do that, but at least it sent a signal to African states that apart from China, they now had a second alternative. And it is that opening space that Russia has exploited and Russia will continue to exploit. Now, if we look at, say, France and the sheer arrogance with which French public officials speak to their African counterparts, that creates a groundswell of anger and it creates a certain fertile ground for any other power that comes in. Russia is not different from any other external power. It's interested in friends, it's interested in resources, it's interested in the mines. But the danger was Russia's presence in Africa, and particularly the representation of Russian power in terms of the Wagner group, is that it threatens Africa's democratic transitions, it threatens the rule of law, and it threatens human rights. Unfortunately, the responses from the West have been dismissive. Instead of coming back to their old friends and saying, look, how do we recalibrate the relationship and the friendship in ways that we can extend security and social welfare goods? And I think that is the space within which the new resurgent Russia is trying to fill. Kaiser, you mentioned the Wagner Group there, and that is, I think, a name that many listeners will have heard of with perhaps without fully understanding exactly the nature of the group and the extent of their involvement in Africa. Could you uh, give us your assessment of those things? The Wagner Group is a mercenary group. I don't think we should try to cover up by saying it's a private military company, it's a private security company. Bottom line, it's a mercenary group. And I think the African Union, because of the history of these type of groups, has a convention against mercenarism. And I think we need to make it very clear that the Wagner Group executive outcomes that came before them and loads of other groups, including the French Legion, were all mercenary groups. The Wagner Group is an extension of Russia's foreign policy, increasingly doing the kind of operations that the Russian forces, formerly representing the Russian state, might not be able to do. So members of the Wagner Group are either retired officers, but people who have a fairly shady past. They are in the Central African Republic. They are in Mali. They will eventually, there are suspicions that some of them are in Guinea. Definitely, they will come to Burkina Faso. So the Wagner Group performs two functions. One, to provide regime security for those who are in power, and then to provide some support also in quelling domestic resistance and in cases where there are extremist groups also doing some training and fighting. But they are also mining. They are involved in artisanal mining, 
for gold and for diamonds. Professor Kwezi Enning, thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Professor Enning is Faculty Director at the Kofi Annan International Peacekeeping Training Centre in Ghana and also currently Visiting Chair at Uppsala University's Nordic Africa Institute. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.